Okay, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for the time that we have, for the freedom that we have to study your word in peace and that we can, as we look out on the rest of the world and the turmoil, that we can be especially thankful for our destiny here in America. We ask that your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts to the content of the word of God this evening. In Christ's name, amen. Um, if you'll turn um, in the notes to page 55, <clears throat> I just want to make one comment before we move on into the doctrinal area tonight. Uh, the t- chart, figure three, is the an, an, uh, same kind of chart as the one in the chapter before when we dealt with the hypostatic union. The uh, purpose of those charts and this rep- repetition of that figure is to reinforce the concept that the worldview or your presupposition, your presuppositional commitments affect the way you interpret not just scripture but all of life. So when we see people diverging in their interpretation of Christ so dramatically as we've seen the critics, uh, it's not because the data aren't clear. The impression is always given that somehow God's revelation is inefficient, it's unclear, uh, it makes unnecessary claims on your credulity. Um, a whole cafeteria uh, of reasons are given. And we have to be careful we don't buy into that worldview. The reason there's a difference is because of the reason of the human heart that comes to the data. That's the reason. And it's precisely because of that that John says, the light came into the world and men loved darkness rather than light. There's the biblical answer. Men love darkness rather than light and don't come to the light lest their deeds be reproved. It's not due to some intellectual problem. It's due to the fact that men love darkness. So we have to keep that in mind and that's why the diagram is there. It's the pagan worldview that is, has as its purpose, ultimately, to try to create a synthetic world that is safe for the sinner, a synthetic world that in which it's a dream world, in which God doesn't really exist. The God of Scripture doesn't really exist inside this mythical synthetic world. Okay, tonight we're going to go on to the first of three doctrines. You'll notice on the bottom of page 55, there are three words, kenosis, impeccability, and infallibility. So we want to pick on the first of these because all three of these ideas uh, come spinning out of the life of the king. Just as in the the doctrine of the hypostatic union, the fact that Jesus Christ is God and man, that comes out of the fact that he came and entered into the world through the virgin birth. The major passage in scripture for this doctrine is Philippians chapter 2. Or yeah, Philippians chapter 2. So I think it would be good if we started with the text in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Went through the text and then came back to some of these verses in the notes. A familiar passage, Philippians 2, 5 through 8, is very challenging. It's one of those passages that you can read quickly, hastily, and on the surface and get a reasonable um, idea of, of the big, big picture. But the moment you begin to scratch a little deeper, um, you realize there's, there's quite a thick basis there. There's quite a, a detailed foundation 
and one that you really it challenges you to think through carefully. In Philippians 2, 5 through 8, if you follow me in, in whatever the translation is you're doing, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Right in the middle of a practical epistle to a local church, Paul drops this passage. And it's so typical of the apostle because he does not appeal to us in superficial terms. The New Testament always gives a deeply spiritual reason for why we are the way we are and how we are to respond to life. This has always bothered the critics of the Christian faith because Christianity refuses to ground its ethic in itself. It always spins the ethic out of a worldview that's very challenging. In this passage, the one of the key verbs is found in verse 7 where it says, he emptied himself. That word empty is the word from which we get kenosis. So the strange word kenosis is just a noun uh, from the Greek that comes out of the verb to empty. That's where the word comes from. And this is the central passage for this doctrine although it's found throughout the scripture. In the context, chapter 2, verse 1 of Philippians, it's clear that practically speaking, he's talking about uh, meeting the trials and uh, pressures of life. It's addressed to every Christian, not theologians. So the presumption is in this passage that every Christian should know the doctrine of kenosis. This is not something reserved for the deep halls of theology. This was utilized originally in context to an epistle uh, to Christians who were involved in the struggle uh, with the world. Um, For example, verse 2, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. So, verse 2 and 3 go through... Uh, what you would call the usual New Testament ethical principles. Uh, Verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Then verse 5, 6, 7, and 8 suddenly drop in to this flow and give the basis for all that. All the rest of it uh, would be drivel were it not grounded upon what is found in verses 5 through 8. So, The problem is to have an attitude which was also in Christ Jesus. And this goes back to the fact that Jesus Christ is God and man. So our our doctrines, our functions are all synthesized. They're all phased together. And we want to remember that Jesus Christ is the creator and he's also creature. He's God and man. God is sovereign. Man has choice. God has love, man has love. 
God has omniscience. Man has knowledge. God has a sense of holy. God is holy. Man has conscience. So we have a correspondence of attributes between the two. One, the, the creature is analogous to the Creator, but not identical to the Creator. And so we always maintain this creator-creature distinction. We are made in God's image. So there's analogies in our soul structure to Him. God has made us to have fellowship with Him. In the previous chapter with the virgin birth, the significance of that event was that for the first time, the second person of the Trinity, who was sovereign, love, omniscience, and holy, that person took upon himself a creature form. So now we have the two together, the God-man. That's what makes Jesus Christ absolutely unique. No other religion has anything approaching this. Only in the biblical Christianity do we have such a thing as one person who is both creator and creature at the same time. A demanding and challenging and incomprehensible truth. But flowing out of this are a number of implications. Now, last chapter, we just dealt with the fact that he is God and man. Now we move into some other territory. Now we're moving into some of the implications, some of the details of what it means to be the God-man. And so in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, is talking about an attitude, a mental attitude, that is in the God-man. Now the God-man is omniscient. The God-man has human limited knowledge. So the question then is, how can we have an attitude that is in the God-man? Is the attitude something God has that is an omniscience, a loving, or is it his creature attitude? And of course, obviously the answer is we can't possess divine attributes, so therefore have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, must refer then to his creaturehood, the fact of his humanity. And we are to mimic what his humanity carried. Thus, Jesus Christ, right from the start in Kenosis, you can begin to see where we're driving with this. Jesus Christ becomes the model of the Christian life. He is the Christian life. Jesus Christ successfully lived the Christian life. And of course, people are going to object, well, yeah, but he was God, he had it easier. That's going to be addressed in impeccability. When we get to the doctrine of impeccability, we'll answer that one. turns out that Jesus Christ actually had it harder. And so, therefore, Jesus Christ is the model. He proves that the Christian life works. So, anytime we are tempted, or we listen to some Christian who's depressed and failed and so on, and blaming God for everything, and the Christian way of life doesn't work, I tried it, you know, been there, done that kind of thing. Uh, no, they haven't, actually. Because Jesus Christ proved that it works because it worked in his life. And if it worked in his life, then it has to be able to work in our life. And so when it fails, it's our problem, not his problem. That's one of the implications that we're driving forward in the doctrine of kenosis. Kenosis disproves that the Christian life is something different for Jesus than it was for us. That's not true. 
Otherwise, Paul in verse 5 would never have said, have this attitude in you which was in Christ Jesus. So, the verse 5 connects all that previous exhortation to the hypostatic union. So then it says, to explain, Paul's going to explain what this attitude is. There's a certain mental attitude that Christ had with which he met all the details of life. Who, although he existed in the form of God. So verses 6, 7, and 8, because verse 9 clearly starts a new thought, therefore. So if you look at the way the verses are set up, verses 6, 7, and 8 must be an exposition of the content of the attitude. Hence, therefore, the doctrine of kenosis is, is, a, is a revelation of this attitude. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and be found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 8 verbs reveal the content of the result of the mental attitude, or the results of the mental attitude. That is, obedience. Submission to the Father's will and obedience, which then tells us that we are face-to-face with a doctrine that we've studied before, which was the doctrine of sanctification. And we did that several times in the Old Testament. And you remember that we said what the whole goal of sanctification isn't to have some religious experience. The goal of sanctification is to have loyalty to God, is to develop a personal relationship with God so that we can be close to Him and experience an intimacy with the Father. And we only can do that as we are obedient. So that's the goal of sanctification. And it's clear from verse 8 that Jesus Christ attained that goal because it says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, how? By becoming obedient to the point of death. In other words, all the way to the cross. So the cross became the ultimate act of obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it says he became obedient. Well, in verse 8, notice this. This is important about sanctification. It says he became obedient. Now, you can't become obedient if you always were obedient. So the fact that Christ became obedient must mean that obedience has to be cultivated. So let's look at this issue of obedience and where it comes from. Let's go back to Adam and Eve. Let's suppose, for the sake of argument, that Adam and Eve did not sin that did not fall. They are in the garden and they are presented with a perfect environment. They were not sinners. God did not create Adam and Eve sinners. Remember? Evil came in after the fall. Evil originated after God finished everything by way of creation. So here we have two people and we theologians tend to call this state Innocence. And they call it innocence because they're trying not to say that they had developed righteousness. The reason is because they hadn't yet obeyed. So there they are in the garden and they are faced with God's 
commands and imperatives, and they exercise themselves in righteousness by obeying. So, you would have a positive, obey, positive volition here, positive volition, positive volition, positive volition. These would be a series of choices that they make. And that, through those choices, they become obedient. And that means they have historical righteousness. So that would have happened had they not fell. Now along comes Jesus Christ in history. He also, from his birth, he also, like Adam and Eve, is innocent. He, like Adam and Eve, has to obey, 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 and he becomes obedient. He becomes obedient by making a series of positive choices toward the will of God. So, Paul clearly in verse 8 is arguing for the progressive sanctification of Jesus Christ. Now, this is interesting because normally we think of sanctification as overcoming evil. And that's because in our worldview, or in our experience, not just our worldview, but that's because we live in an evil world. And in this evil world, remember, we are living in an abnormal existence. What we tend to do, and we shouldn't really do this, what we tend to do is we think of our existence with evil in it, with death in it, with sorrow in it, with grief in it, as normal. And then we say, go on to say that sanctification is our struggle against evil. Well, this isn't really so because we would have to have been sanctified even if the fall hadn't occurred. Sanctification is an issue that precedes the issue of sin and evil and grief and suffering. We have to struggle over against the hindrance to this. Uh, An example that always made a lot of sense to me is an agricultural one. If you have an empty field and you want to produce a crop, if there were no weeds, and if there were no bugs, then it would be a simple case of planting and growing and watering and fertilizing. But because we have evil in nature, that process of growing and bringing something to crop, to harvest, is overcoming all the other things that come against it to tear it down the thorns and the thistles and the things of the cursing of the ground that God did. So, the herbicides, the pesticides, all the anti-insect and anti-fungicide and all the rest of the stuff that you have to deal with, those are all like sin. Those are the hindrances to the crop. But even if those weren't there, you'd still have to grow the crop. So, be careful in thinking this through. And when you get into this, Otherwise, you see, if you think that sanctification is overcoming evil, what are you going to do about Jesus? How is he going to be sanctified? And the very word sanctified is used in the epistle of Hebrews. If you hold the place and turn to Hebrews, In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, 
is a reference to this process in Jesus' humanity. For it was fitting for Him, for whom are all things, through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Now, here's an interesting question from the Trinity. Look at verse 10 and who, which of the three persons of the Trinity is, it, is spoken of there? It was fitted for Him, well, it could be the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, for whom are all things, through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. Now, that very phrase, from all things, through all things, is referred to the Father in Romans. So, that's the first person of the Trinity that's mentioned in verse 10. It was fitting for Him, the Father, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, now notice what the Father does. To perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So, who's the author of their salvation? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And this passage clearly teaches that He is sanctified. He had to be sanctified to qualify as Savior. So, there's a process in Christ's humanity and that's what's exhibited in the life of the king. We have the track record of that process in the four Gospels. The four Gospels are the history of Jesus Christ's sanctification. Now, coming back to Philippians. Let's go in for another pass on this and notice a few other things. We'll notice that of course, in verse 9, 10, 11, the result of him being sanctified is a reward. The eternal state is populated by those who are believers and it's populated in such a way as to reward believers for how we have lived in this life. And that applies, first of all, and primarily to Jesus Christ. You'll notice that Verse 9 begins with a therefore. As a result of the sanctification of Jesus Christ, the Father has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And if you have a study Bible, you will notice that the phrase every knee shall bow is footnoted or it's marginalized with a margin note. And it should lead you back to a quotation out of the Old Testament, in particular Isaiah 45. And if you went back to that passage, every knee should bow, it is a reference to Jehovah God. It's one of those passages where, remember we said one of the evidence of the deity of Christ is that Old Testament references that refer to Yahweh are also referring to Him. Here's one of them. Here, Isaiah 50, or 45, is taken of Jehovah and is now applied to Jesus. So, and then some people will confuse this and say, well, gee, in verse 10 it's saying that he, he became deity, so to speak. He was man until that's not what's being taught here. That's something a hasty reader could conclude, but that's not what's being taught. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And notice in verse 10 that Jesus Christ reigns in all three realms today. He reigns in heaven, meaning that the angelic host, both good and evil, have to submit to this man that sits at the Father's right hand. Now think of all the science fiction 
pictures you've thought of and seen and read about. Isn't it interesting? The biblical claim is that the universe is not run by a Martian. It's not run by somebody from galaxy 88 that's uh, a million years more evolved than we are. It's not run by an angel, who, by the way, are the real extraterrestrials in Scripture. It's not run by any of those. It is run by a member from planet Earth who sits at the Father's right hand. So the entire cosmos, this is a cosmic claim, that those who are in heaven and those who are on earth and those who are under the earth, Jesus reigns over heaven and hell. And this is the tremendously offensive thing about the gospel in that all men is talking about here, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They don't now, but they will be made to. Either men willingly and voluntarily submit through the leading of the Holy Spirit or they resist the Holy Spirit and then God breaks their knees and they will confess that Jesus is Lord. But heaven and hell both will confess that Jesus is Lord. There's no escape from Jesus Christ now. There might have been had he flubbed it. But once he attained his righteousness through historic obedience, once the Father installed him at the throne, there's no turning back. Now he is the King of Kings. Well, going backwards then, we've seen the destiny and the result of his sanctification. Let's go back to verse 5 now. Have this attitude which is in yourselves as is in Christ Jesus. Now, don't skip from verse 5 down to verse 9. There have been Christians that do that, and there's a name for this. It's called... Triumphalism. The idea that now we reign. The idea that now we have the political authority. Right now that all men should obey us because we are the representatives of Christ. That's triumphalism. And you'll see that in the career of our Lord, He wasn't triumphant until His sanctification was finished. Triumph follows sanctification, not simultaneous with it. So therefore, instead of going from verse 5 to verse 10, we have to go from verse 5 to verse 6. Verses 6 and 7 and 8 are the crux of kenosis. Now we get into the details of what this doctrine is talking about. The problem here is, in verse 6, 7, and 8, things are stated about the person of Christ that are very, very difficult to comprehend. Ultimately, incomprehensible like the hypostatic union. But we try to do as best as we can under the teaching of the Holy Spirit through Scripture. Let's take it apart. Verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses try to say that, see, he was only in the form of God and he could have become God. That's not verse 6. Verse 6 is saying, Jesus Christ existed with full deity, undiminished deity. But the point is, he did not regard equality with God, that is, his undiminished deity, something to be held onto when the mission called for denial or some modification 
of that undiminished deity. And the question is, what is the modification that happened during those years, those 30 years in which Jesus Christ walked this planet? What happened in him personally that he could have, had he rejected the Father's plan for his life, insisted that he would manifest his undiminished deity at every point in his life? Apparently, this verse is saying he did not. That had we been with Jesus and walked with him and talked with him, we would have not seen undiminished deity, except perhaps occasionally. What we would have seen was a fantastically righteous and holy human being who was perfectly obedient to the Father in every area. And then from time to time, we would see that undiminished deity like a lamp suddenly turned on and come out, and then it would go off again. John, the go- John's Gospel has, sees this a lot. So learn to watch those moments as you read the Gospels for the flashing forth of the undiminished deity. And most other times, the undiminished deity is not seen. Why? Because Jesus Christ, for the sake of the call of God on his life, forsook manifesting this undiminished deity in some way. And that's described in verse 7. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. There was an emptying that happened when Jesus Christ became incarnate. And being found in appearance as a man, it says, he humbled himself. So he submitted to the obedience of the Father. And the kicker is that Jesus Christ submitted in obedience exactly the same way you and I do. That is why he can be our judge. Trial by peer. He went through it. And there are all kinds of neat things, comforting things that come out of this. But we're not going to get to the implications of the doctrine tonight because we want to understand the doctrine first. Then we'll worry about the implications of it. We want to focus on this. This is what we should be singing about in our hymns instead of worrying about what some songwriter in 1852 thought about when he became a Christian. I mean, that's nice, but that's autobiographical information. What we need to do is focus upon these things. And if we would focus upon these central truths, everything else would take care of itself. But we always try to do things backwards. And we try to use the contorted indirect approach. Like we have to respond to the hymn writer's response to the gospel. Now, why do I have to respond to the hymn writer's response to the gospel? Why can't I just directly respond to the gospel? Well, I could if the hymn sang about the gospel. But when it's giving me autobiographical details about how I feel, maybe I feel that way in Sunday morning, maybe I don't. So it introduces an indirectness and actually separates the believer from an intimacy with God. And the evangelical hymn books are full of this junk. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Well now, from here, let's move to the notes. The church, for many centuries, thought this one through. And it wasn't an easy thing. So let's, on page 56, let's look at the doctrine and we'll get into the biblical data. Page 56, I just want to run through it pretty quickly with you because page 57 has a lot of the biblical material in it. Notice in in the first paragraph the italics. It's just what I said. It follows, therefore, 
that even a sinless human like Christ would have to experience sanctification to accomplish his mission as a man. Since he is king of the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ must be perfectly sanctified to carry out this leadership role. In undergoing sanctification, Christ fulfills the ideal pointed out by Old Testament King David, who was the first type of the Messiah. Now, watch the parallels. This is where your Old Testament history fantastically helps you understand the New Testament if you have the Old Testament history and have been taught it. But again, we never hear sermons in the Old Testament. We're always going through the New Testament. Second paragraph. David's experiences provide some analogy with Christ's human experiences. Analogy. Not identity. Analogy. In particular, the long struggle of David to accede to his throne from 1 Samuel 16 to 2 Samuel 4. What happened in 1 Samuel 16 to David? Anybody remember? That's the passage where we often memorize the verse, God looks on the heart, man looks on the outward appearance. Remember the context of that verse? What was going on there? Prophetic anointing. Who picks the king in the Old Testament? The prophets pick the king. Who was the prophet that picked the king? Samuel. And how did Samuel pick the king? He went to Jesse's house. Asked to see his sons. And David was out doing chores. He was the youngest one. And Samuel said, one of your kids is missing. I want to talk to him. Jesse went out. The teenager, young teenager came to him. Samuel anointed David. Now, he was just a young teenager then. Did he immediately become king of Israel at the anointing? No. All the way from 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel 4, a series of stories are told about David. Now, what are those stories about? What were the content? How would you characterize the content of the stories between 1 Samuel 16 and 2 Samuel 4? You remember the stories? One Goliath story, uh, Saul trying to kill him. Let's think about those things. Let's, start, let's write some of these out for observational purposes. First Samuel 16 to 2 Samuel 4. We have David doing things. We have the Goliath incident. We have Saul's uh, attempt at assassination. We have David excelling in the martial arts and excelling in what other area? Music. He played the harp for Saul and he danced before the Lord. So David was a martial artist and he was also a musician. The martial artist would be point one. Now isn't that a strange combination? And he conquered and he destroyed the enemies of Israel. And after that, after all those stories, then he received the crown and the coronation and became king. You see, he didn't accede to the throne upon his anointing. There was a separation, a time interval between the anointing and the crown. Crown being 1 Samuel 4. What analogy does this look like if we apply this to Jesus Christ? Who was the prophet who anointed Jesus? It was John. And 
What do we have between the anointing of John? Did Jesus Christ become king of kings at the anointing in the Jordan? Absolutely not. He was rejected by his own people. He was crucified. And he has risen from the dead and he's at the Father's right hand and he's king there, but he isn't yet king of Israel, is he? In an acknowledged state. He isn't the messianic king yet. So Christ still isn't king in the messianic sense of his physical chosen people. So the process with Jesus is still going on. But as far as his human attainment, his human personal sanctification, at the end of all four Gospels, that is fixed. So he's got that. Okay. Just as David's prophetic anointing by the prophet Samuel was not enough to affect throne succession, so Jesus' anointing by John was not enough to place him immediately as reigning king. David had to endure the acid test of experience before the nation would recognize his throne claim. Remember, when David became king, it was an acknowledgement on the part of the public. The prophets knew that he was the king material. Elsewise, if Samuel wasn't sure, Samuel had never anointed him. So God's will was known for David, that he was going to be king. The prophets acknowledged God's will, but the public didn't. The public had to be won to David by his historic life. Who was won to Jesus by his historic life? The population of the kingdom. That's believers. We are impressed with the person of Jesus Christ. We trust in him and that qualifies us as citizens for the kingdom. And we acknowledge and that's why he's going to be king over us. So there's the analogy between David and the king. Now the biblical data of sanctification. Page 57. The first two paragraphs, I'm trying to take a divine attribute and work with the divine attributes. I think it's clear if we do that. Let's take the first one, which is omniscience. One part of the biblical data concerns Christ's divine attribute as omniscience. Turn to Matthew 24, 36. What does verse 36 do if Jesus is omniscient? You see the problem? Jehovah's Witnesses love these verses. I always pick on Jehovah's Witnesses because they're most explicit, but all cults do the same thing. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, but the Father alone. Now, what do we know about human knowledge? Remember that diagram back years ago? The limitations of man's knowledge. If Jesus was true humanity, what does being part of true humanity mean? That he has human knowledge. And if Jesus has human knowledge, what is true of that human knowledge? It's limited. Jesus had, in his humanity, limited knowledge. Are the angels creatures? Yes. Do they have limited knowledge? Yes. Greater than ours, but still limited. So what does verse 36 say then? But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now to read some 
Christian book material in the bookstore, you'd think that uh, all the book writers knew because they were always setting dates. Funny how they know more than the angels in heaven, isn't it? Funny how they know more than the humanity of Jesus. But we have people make money on books, always arguing about they're going to set the date. Been going on since 1844 when William Miller went up and got a group of people in New York and they were the first Adventists. Christ's Advent, going to come. Obviously, he didn't come in 1844, so they adjusted their message and went on, and then we still have people doing the thing. Even in our own circles, we have people always trying to set dates. Now, I don't know, maybe verse 36 isn't in their Bibles or something, but it is in mine. It's been in mine ever since I can remember. And it says that no creature knows the day or the hour. With all due respect to the Christian book writers. Jesus Christ didn't know. So that means Jesus Christ had limited knowledge. And that means that when he said that, he was not exercising his omniscience. It was not manifested here. As the disciples were listening to him, it was like he was an ordinary person, like you and me. No sign whatsoever on the omniscience. Let's go to Mark 5.9. This is another typical example. Jesus faces a demon. And this man, who has been suffering a real far-out person, doesn't mean all people on the funny farm are demon and dwell please. No. You can be crazy with some forms of chemical imbalance in the brain. It has nothing to do with demonic. It just has your body chemistry screwed up. I mean, all of us at times have a body chemistry that's screwed up. And we're grumpy or we forget or we do all kinds of things. And it's not a sign of demonic. It's just a sign of our, our weakness of our body, the weakness of the flesh. But in this case, it was demonic. There are such things as demons, and the demons can indwell human beings. He cried out with a loud voice, verse 7, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, don't, don't torment me. So now here's a conversation that's interesting. Wouldn't you this be cute to watch? Jesus is talking to a demon, talking through a person. And he carries on a conversation. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And the spirit didn't want to come out for various reasons, having to do with demonic powers, because when they come out of the body, apparently they go into torment. So they get relief by going inside people. And while they're inside the people, they aren't tormented. So he's saying to Jesus, Don't, don't let me get out of this guy. It's better for me to be here. It's better for the guy to be here. It was better for the demon to be there. And Jesus kept saying, by the way, get out of him. Get out of him, I'm telling you. And he was asking him, what is your name? Now, why, if Jesus Christ is omniscient, does he have to ask the demon for the demon's name? This is one of several verses that I cite in the notes and the 
fourth line and pay, uh, paragraph one and page 57, you'll see some other verses there. But my point in citing these verses is Jesus genuinely asked for information from people. If he was exercising his omniscience, he wouldn't have had to have asked for information. He would have known the information, correct? So it clearly shows that at these points in his life, he is not calling upon his omniscience. He is walking around, meeting the trials of life in the same capacity with the same functions that we have to. Gee, I wonder why... Planet like we walk the planet. No difference. True humanity. Okay, now let's go into the Old Testament for a minute. And let's look at a messianic passage that is really a fantastic insight in the person of Christ. I never heard a, I never heard a sermon on this passage. I got this from Guy at Dillage back in the 19th century, one of the great Old Testament commentators. He wrote a book called Christology in the Old Testament. Wonderful book if you can ever get a hold of that one. Because he goes through all the Old Testament and shows you the messianic passages. Turn to Isaiah 50. This is one of those neat little nuggets that you come across and just say, wow, look at this one. Isaiah chapter 50. We want to look at the whole context here. Back in the days when I knew Hebrew, hadn't lost my facility with it, I regret that I never really studied thoroughly the book of Isaiah. Because this book is a tremendous book. It's got so many neat things in it. In Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 to 11 is one of these passages that look forward to the Messiah. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. Now look what he says in verse 4. He wakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spit. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourself with firebrands, walk in the light of your fire. And among the brands you have set ablaze, this you will have from my hand, and you will lie down in torment. We won't go into all the historical details of that, but notice it's quite clear from verses 6 through 7 who, who this is talking about. You don't have to be a THD to figure that one out. But what we want to look at is that little phrase in verse 4. 
That tells us an amazing thing about the life of Jesus. That in the morning, he didn't have an alarm clock and a clock radio. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'd be lost without mine. Um, but who woken the humanity of Jesus? God the Father. Every morning, God the Father woke God the Son and began to teach Him. And it was in those early morning hours that Jesus Christ communed with His Father and learned the great and deep things of the Word of God. Listen to Delich's comment. I quote that, or Hengstenberg, excuse me. It wasn't Delich, it was Hengstenberg. The great student of Old Testament Christology commented on this text that the figure is taken from a teacher who in the morning, before he commences instruction, summons his pupils to him. See, it's a picture that Jesus himself, what does he say? He has given me the tongue of disciples. He wakens my ear to listen as a what? To listen as a disciple, as a student. In the morning, Jesus was woken by his father and learned as a student. Isn't that a neat truth? I mean, it gives you a little bit more insight into this enigmatic figure of the, of the Gospels, just what it must have been like to be near him. He wakens me morning by morning, every single morning. The Son was awoken by the Father. And in verse 5, the revelation begins. And the Lord God has opened my ear. Now, you see, opening the ear would not be true if Jesus Christ were relying on his omniscience, would it? Does omniscience ever have to learn anything? Absolutely not. So if this passage is talking about learning, and it's talking about the Messiah, it must be talking about his what? Undiminished deity or his true humanity? It must be talking about his true humanity. It must be talking about this thing. Limited human knowledge. It can't be talking about this, because that omniscience doesn't learn anything. Okay, back to the notes, page 57. Let's move on to, oh, oh, by the way, before we move on, I have a string of verses at the end of that first paragraph, and one of them I want to take you to, John chapter 1, just so you don't get the idea from tonight that Jesus never showed his omniscience. Here was something that really flipped out the disciples when it happened. Talking about how uh, the disciples first were attracted to Jesus and the the social relationships that that were used. On on, uh, chapter 1, verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, Will you come and see? Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And what does Jesus say? Is that omniscience? Look carefully. Verse 48. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, 
I saw you. Now what does Nathaniel do? Next verse. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. This is typical of the Apostle John. He likes to show us that it's when Jesus flashes forth with that just ever so quick manifestation of his deity that people believe and trust in him. And that in fact, trusting in the New Testament is trusting not just in the humanity of Jesus, but it's trusting in his deity. Recognizing as God-man. And that's through which we have eternal life. So there's a manifestation. I mean, Nathaniel knew when Jesus said that to him that Big Brother had been watching him because nobody else knew that he was sitting on her fig tree. So there's this ambiguity in the New Testament, isn't there? On the one hand, Jesus says sometimes, I don't know anything. Other times he asks people for information. And then you get to a passage like this and he tells people their entire autobiography. So there's this dual structure that goes back and forth and back and forth in the New Testament. There's omniscience. Now the second paragraph in our notes, omnipotence. Now, let's look at Matthew 12:28 for a moment. There are other verses, and I encourage you to look at those verses that I've listed there. Could have listed a lot more, but these are, the, I think, the best. Matthew 12, 28. He's casting out demons again. And what we want to observe in verse 28 is by what power did he cast them out? Was he casting them out by his omnipotence? Or because he was a man with limited power, he had to rely in trust upon God to do it. So in Matthew 12:28 he says, "I cast out demons by what? The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Whom then did Jesus trust on a day-by-day basis? Trusting God, who worked in and through his Holy Spirit in his life. And what do we do? We should trust God to work His Holy Spirit with His Holy Spirit through our life. Is Jesus a model? Yes, He is. By not using His omnipotence, the fact is that He is obviously omnipotent. Nobody disputes that as God. We, however, we have energy. We have limited power. It's that limited power that is being shown here, not this. So we have a wonderful case where the full kenosis of omnipotence is happening. Now, let's uh, look at Matthew 8.26 for the other side of the story. Story of the storm. Verse 24, great storm at the sea. The boat was covered with water, but he himself was asleep. 
And they came to him and awoke him. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. By the way, now, who are these guys that are out in the boat? I mean, you've got to get the background here. Are these guys never been on a boat? No. These guys had a fishing business. They were on boats every day. Well, if they're reacting the way they are in verse 25, what does that tell you about the magnitude of this particular storm? must have been a ripper. Right? These guys facing storms every day of their life and their business. And they're out here tonight and it's a, it's a whopper. And this guy, Jesus, is lying there and he's snoozing. The boat's probably going like this and they're almost falling off. And this guy's asleep. You know, what is this guy? And he gets up. In verse 26, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? He arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea and it became perfectly calm instantly. And what do the men say? What kind of a man is this that the winds of the sea obey him? Now what is he doing? He's exercising his omnipotence. When he says, knock it off, the winds knock it off. So we have again the same thing we had with his omniscience. Sometimes... He shows limited power like we do. Other times, when he chooses to reveal himself, he shows omnipotence. So you could go from attribute to attribute. Same thing, over and over. One hand, true humanity. And the other passage, undiminished deity. What's going on? Okay. Down the bottom, page 57. Let's draw this to a conclusion. Theologians have been concerned in stating the doctrine of kenosis, not to dilute the divine nature of Christ on one hand, yet to give due weight to the restricted use of the divine nature during Christ's trials on the other hand. Notice, restricted use of the divine nature during what? During Christ's trials. Because those points of obedience, 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 have got to be cases where he, in his true humanity, responded to the situation in such a way that he can identify with you and me. He didn't cheat by using his omnipotence and his omniscience in those points of trial. Now you figure this guy out here. He had to know when to turn on and turn off to please his Father. Talk about knowing God's will. If his divine nature is diluted, then the hypostatic union is denied. If his divine nature is not restricted, then Christ cannot be a model for believers in sanctification since his would have an, he, would, he would have an advantage not shared by any other man. The question is how to describe what was going on in the incarnation that avoids these two errors. Some have defined kenosis as the giving up of some or all the divine attributes. Others, particularly Reformed conservative ones, have defined kenosis as the non-use of divine attributes. The best definition, however, is that kenosis refers to the giving up of the independent use of the divine attributes. Now, we're going to stop right there. The best definition is that the kenosis refers to giving up the independent use of the divine attributes. Therefore, conclusion, how did Jesus Christ in operational from day-to-day operations, how did he 
What attitude was in him that allowed him to turn it on, turn it off? Whatever pleased his father. In that, see, he submitted as second person of Trinity. He was equal to the first person. He had all the attributes. But as God-man walking this earth as our Savior, he voluntarily restricted those attributes use under the Father's plan, whatever the Father wanted. Is this okay to reveal at this time? Yes. Okay, I will. He wakens me morning by morning, and I learn morning by morning the path for that day. God the Father taught His Son every single morning, and all through that day, the Son either manifested His divine attributes or didn't. He never cheated. He never stepped out of the Father's will. He always met every trial in the same way we did. Father, we're thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ indeed lived a perfect life, never once straying outside of your will. And an inspiration it is for us. And we ask that the Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts to this grand work that was done on our planet in our time, in our history. And as a result, we can come to the great high priest because he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And he understands us because he has been here. He has walked through an abnormal, evil world. He has had to face everything in the same way we have to face everything by looking to you and to you alone. We thank you for this perfect life now in Christ's name. Amen. to show this back in the lesson, but I didn't. Uh, Ted Moran made this. You know the bumper sticker that you've seen for the fish? And then you see the Darwinist put feet on it, and it's now evolution. Well, here's Ted's rendition, the third version. <laughs> but in all, all humor aside... Um, actually, I told Ted, um, what's neat about this thing is that it shows you this business of envelopment, strategic envelopment. I mean, I just love this. Sucking up Darwin. Um, and that, it's a neat, humorous way to express the idea. So I think uh, I'd like to keep this diagram because it's, it's, I think it's a great one for illustrating this, uh, the issue of of strategic envelopment of a worldview. Um, are, are there any uh, points that you'd like to go over or have questions about tonight before we... Yes? Okay, the, the idea of the universality of the claim of Christ, that it's a voluntary recognition. Um, the problem is that hearts are so hardened at that point that nothing can be done. 
And it's, uh, it's, it's, C.S. Lewis, I think, was the guy who said <clears throat> um, something to the effect that unbelief gradually hardened prepares one for hell. Uh, the person would not be happy in heaven because in heaven there's eternal submission to the Father. And a hardened heart of unbelief defies that. It, it wants total self, you know, I am God. And what must happen, you know, it's interesting to think about what happens when all of a sudden it becomes very obvious who Jesus Christ is, that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Yet the person who acknowledges this has a hardened heart. I think it must be um, excruciatingly painful. Um, not in the sense of being forced to acknowledge it, but the acknowledgement coupled with the heart and heart uh, must be very, very excruciatingly painful. Um, have any of you um, heard of this doctrine before under this name, kenosis? Anybody studied this before? Um, this is uh, the, the title. If you study the systematic theology, it would be in there, but um, it's not something that is a, uh, is a theoretical thing, I hope, when we get through here. You'll see that much like the hypostatic union, it's a, it's a lofty-sounding word, but it's a very precise label for a very important area of truth that... Um, hinging on all of the, the the whole idea of Christ being our sympathetic high priest who can identify with our sufferings is built upon the validity of kenosis. If kenosis is false, then all that is built upon it uh, just, is just disintegrates. So this is why this is a very uh, foundational doctrine. And you can see, I think, tonight why we had to go through the hypostatic union first. Have to get the hypostatic union, the God and man, so that we know the two categories, undiminished deity and true humanity. After we learn that lesson, then we discuss, well now, is this the deity or is this the humanity? And that's what we're working through as we work through this biblical material, trying to sort. It's got to be one or the other. Um, there are some passages, and I haven't got them in the notes, where it seems like both show up, but those aren't as or those are kind of rare compared to the passages like we've seen. So if you can think through what we went through tonight, is that uh, the more you get into the biography of Christ and the four Gospels, the more complex Jesus appears. But, we, but that doesn't make our faith complicated because all of the complexities simply work together to focus us on a simple trust in his character. So in the end, it's a simple faith in him. It's just that by going through these details and thinking about them, besides exercising our brains, um, exercises our hearts in appreciation of who this one is, who is our Savior. And I think elevates him out of the... Uh, we get a little too familiar with him sometimes in our Christian religious language and don't penetratively 
reflect upon who he is. Um, it's neat um, when you have been exposed to these truths. It's neat to quietly meditate upon a scripture. And with these tools that we've used here, use these as ways of questioning the scripture. When you read a passage of scripture uh, in the Gospels and it talks about Jesus and it has him in a social situation of some sort, um, ask the Father to guide you into sorting this out. Does this show the humanity of my Savior? Does this show his deity? Um, and it gives you content to work with. So you're not just going into a, uh, a blank mind meditation like the Orientals do. I mean, uh, the point of Christian meditation is the opposite of pagan meditation. Pagan meditation, you do blank out all thinking. Um, must be a lot of meditating going on like that today. Um, but in, in Christian meditation, it's actually exactly the opposite. How can we meditate upon the, the triune God without straining our brains? See, it automatically engages the mind at the most deep level. This is what bugs me. Uh, one of the young people that come here was saying that uh, uh, professors said that, well, there wasn't much serious philosophic thinking done until the age of the Enlightenment. Well, I would rather say that in those four centuries when the church was discussing the humanity of Christ and trying to fit it with the deity and the hypostatic union doctrine, I think there was some philosophic reasoning going on there of quite a high order. So we, we must appreciate the, the depth of our faith. Yes, Debbie. Okay. I mean, is, that, is it just obedience, or is it more than obedience in the sense that is it a meekness? Uh, I guess. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, Debbie's asked um, about how this kenosis doctrine works out when you're just human, not when you're God and man, when you're just man. Um, We'll get into some of the specific implications. Uh, there's a, quite a few implications to this when we get into the next section of the notes, which we'll cover next week. But um, I think if, you, if, if we model, if we use Christ as a model, that a lot more than obedience was involved in that. Um, remember where it says, and he humbled himself and became obedient. And the obedience is the fruit 
but there's a lot more of the root. And the root is in this humility thing. And one of the implications we're going to get into is um, uh, you always anticipate my next lesson, but that's all right. That's good because it shows you the, the logical progression is there. Think of in, in ancient Greek thought, what were the admirable virtues that they looked to? What were the and, and they're coming up, by the way, just in the Baltimore Sun this weekend, we saw how Stoicism is now coming up again in, in the how-to books that you get in the business ends. It's really a resurgence of Greek Stoicism. Um, what were some of the Greek virtues that they thought was what really made you a dynamic person? Uh, courage. You could list it courage, um, determination, persistence, all those kind of virtues. What the doctrine of kenosis is warning us about is that the virtue lists that we classically review need to be turned on their head. The virtue of all virtues from the Christian position is humility before God. And that's one of the roots of the obedience. There can't be obedience if it's reluctant obedience, if it's put on obedience, if it's just, I'll do it because you told me to do it. That's not really what God's after. But we can't get to willing obedience until we have this humility before God. And I think, just a minute, and I think that in Jesus' case, that willingness before God gets clearer so that he can model it for us because he had to, I mean, the spectacle of a person who is God voluntarily acting not like God but like man out of obedience and humility to his Father is, is mind-boggling. So the emphasis, even though he's God and man and we're only man, that makes it all the more uh, clear to us what humility really is. And again, next week we're going to get into some of the profound implications of this act and why it's not well understood what humility is. Humility isn't acting weakly. Jesus, you could never say Jesus was a weak person, could you? But yet he was a humble person. He submitted wholly to the Father even when that meant standing up to a mob and looking him right in the eye. See, humility before God doesn't mean weakness before men. Now, we tend to think that because when we go to stand against this world, we try to you know, bootstrap our courage up, and we're going to do it in our energy, and we're going to fight those guys. And that, you know, that's macho. But... Jesus actually had a different version. And you couldn't accuse Jesus of not being a man. I mean, who could have sat by and watched him handle a mob, ready to knock him off the cliff, and he looks him right in the eye and he walks right through him? Now, you talk about God's ball and macho. He showed macho. But it was a macho that was born out of a prior humility before God, whatever you want, Father. Yes. Go 
the the, tr- the trick, if there's a trick to this, uh, that we we want to remember is we're not going through the hypostatic union of kenosis because we're trying to show great theology. I mean, this stuff is available in any theology text. There's nothing that I'm going through here that's, that's me. My point in going through this is that ask yourself the question that whatever it is, whatever quality, virtue, value that you're trying to produce in your life, why are you trying to produce it? What, what is the mechanism, the technique that you're using? If it's just so that it's like a pair of clothes or a pair of pants or a blouse or something that looks good on me, that's really not the motive behind those virtues. The motive behind the virtues is looking at Him. It flows out of looking at Him. And in order to look at Him, getting back to meditation, it's got to be contentful. We've got to have content. We have to have specifics. Yes, He's incomprehensible. But that doesn't excuse us from not appreciating this truth, this truth, that truth, that truth. I mean, you could take that passage in Isaiah 50 that we just dealt with tonight and meditate on that for days, on just what it was like to have been there, maybe sleeping on the ground in your sleeping bag next to Jesus. I mean, you wouldn't hear God talking to him necessarily, but in the wee hours of the morning, he would be up, and he would be with a scroll or he'd be with praying because he was in that reception mode, listening to his father teach him. And in his case, remember, he had to finish his ministry in less than two years. Now you stop, you know, we have years and years and years in our careers, 20, 30 years. The Lord Jesus Christ did all this in two years. Isn't this stunning? You talk about highly efficient use of time. Every day, every day, every person, every meeting, everything was exquisitely timed so that nothing was wasted and everything was in place. Just the right people were touched in just the right way so that history would forever be changed by just a few months of work. Pretty neat. And it goes back to, what does it say in that passage in Isaiah 50, verse 5? He has given me an ear to hear. And that's what this humility is about. That's the kind of, it doesn't mean going around, you know. It means rather uh, listening to God Almighty in, in all the stuff and the confusion, the chaos of our time. We have to fight to get five seconds of quality time to sit there and listen. And our lives are really full of activity and chaos and demands and all kinds of stuff. And all we're urging is, isn't that a neat model that you got, that simple model? He wakeneth me morning by morning. Well, next week we'll talk more about the implications of kenosis. And read in the notes the next section because we're going to deal with a cardinal virtue of the Christian. Biblically, the cardinal virtue is humility before God. I want to see the implications of submission in authority structures. And then we're going to go on to one of the interesting passages in, in Hebrews 
that passage, you know, we, I've just quoted three or four times tonight. We have a merciful and faithful high priest who can be touched with a feeling of our infirmities. That passage is all based on kenosis. See, the high priest has been here. The high priest knows what it means to have to trust the Lord to do something because in your power of humanity you can't. So, that will all come out. Okay.